This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week Extra. It's our weekly podcast bringing you an in-depth interview you will not hear anywhere else. And this week, we've got retired four-star general Stanley McChrystal. He talked about so many different things, uh, talked about the world that we currently live in, but he also talked about technology and not letting it get in the way of relationships. He also talked about crises, his own personal crisis, and how basically his life, as he knew it, changed in about 24 hours. So I want to ask you, um, did you work out this morning? I did. Runner or another thing? Today was a gym day, so I went to the gym at about 4.45. He does the gym or run every, every day. day? Yeah. Um, you used to sleep four hours. You sleep more now, right? I do. I sleep as much as I can now. Okay. I'll probably fall asleep while we're talking. <laughs> no, don't do that, please. Okay. Uh, and you haven't had anything to eat today, I bet. No. Because you eat one meal a day. Yes. And you've been doing that for years. About 40 years. Why? Well, I thought it was, when I was a lieutenant, I thought I was getting fat. So I started this, and people think it's some kind of zen thing. Now, it's just a habit. Yeah, yeah. It's You're kind of in what, right now. What I do, yeah. My <laughs> wife eats like seven meals a day, so we balance out. I'm like your wife. Um, I want to talk a bunch, about a bunch of things. And I think I, what I wanted to do is I just pulled off a couple of stories off of Bloomberg today. And I just wondered how people lead in this environment. Um, you had the president tweeting. This is, this is our normal routine. We start with the presidential tweets. He blasted Mario Draghi. Uh, he blasted the China for weak currencies. We had that going on. He also is calling the attacks, the ship attacks in the Persian Gulf, as minor. But in the meantime, the U.S. is adding troops in the Middle East. We have investors saying we haven't been this bearish since the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, and the world's top bike maker saying the era of made in China is over. Um, and then there's Facebook wanting to put out a currency, its own cryptocurrency, to rival the U.S. dollar. We have so many things being thrown at us from so many different angles. You've had to witness that. You know, you're many years in Afghanistan, and you get word from Washington. You get word from your, the front line and your troops, um, your peers. How do you do it? How do you, you know, and these guys are dealing with lots of different things. Well, it's interesting. When I was a very young officer, uh, you didn't get much intelligence, so you'd be in a command center and everybody would be waiting for intelligence reports to come in and they'd grab them and they'd spend time. Then the opposite occurred about two-thirds of the way through my career with information technology, and then it came in in floods. And then you said, well, how do you figure out how to curate that, what's important, who prioritizes it for the leader? I don't think we've ever completely figured that out. What, what we went to as I was a senior leader was I didn't operate in a private office. I operated in what we called a situational awareness room. And I kind of marinated in the information. I didn't stop and just get a set of briefings. You marinate in it because your situational awareness is critical. You have to have context. Right. Every decision you make has to have context. So you start to de develop the ability to make sure information flows constantly to as many people as possible. And then when decisions come up, you start with a general understanding. And the key thing is not to try to induce more uncertainty into that, particularly with false information. Well, it's interesting. And technology plays into this big time. And, you know, I watched um, some of your TED Talks online, and I recommend everybody do it because it was really fascinating. You talked a lot about technology and this need for more and more and more. This is the world we live in and to be more and more connected. But there's something you said, your take on technology. Number one, you were enamored with it. Number two, it seduced you. And number three, you were bound by it. That's not good. Yeah, it's, 
it, but it's important to understand that. It, when I describe our situation in this room, we had 10 to 12 flat panel screens. Right. And on a given evening when we're doing a lot of ops, there's a separate actual operation occurring on all of those times. Helicopters landing, people doing raids, things yeah. like that. And there's this temptation to look at that and have a two-dimensional picture of what's happening on the ground. And we actually have the technology where you could listen to their radio talks internal to the raid force. And you could talk to them if you wanted to. But I never once did that because there's this deception that you know what's going on because from 10,000 feet, you have this high definition view of it. In reality, you don't. You don't know how cold it is. You don't hear the crack of the bullets. You're not tired. The person on the ground has to do that. However, what you can do is you can understand the broader situation. You can posture yourself so that as that force on the ground, you start to see things happen. Right. Instead of telling them what to do, you tell them what's happening. You position reinforcements. You position medical evacuation. You position fire support. And then you offer it to them. You say, this is available. This is so-and-so. And, but you, you can't take over because, one, you are not in the right place to make the decision. You're not the right person to make the decision. And you've got to understand that it's deception to pretend that you are omniscient. So trust the folks that are on the ground. You have to. So staying with technology for a moment, though, I think you also talk a lot about this whole idea of feeling like you're connected and then really having connected relationships. And you have to be very careful. And we see this all the time that we're emailing the person sitting next to me. How crazy is that? And there's something different texting versus picking up the phone and talking to somebody. Talk to us about the importance of leadership and having those connected relationships, real connected relationships. Yeah, if, if you think about it, you, we're in an era where you also create these false friendships, whether it's on Facebook or wherever. We even use the term, you know, me, friends. My Twitter somebody. followers don't love me? Yeah. No, okay. Um, <laughs> I've got a friend of mine who's got a saying, and he calls it the 495 Club. And 495 is the beltway around yeah. Washington, D.C. And he says, there's a group of people that if they call me in the middle of the night and tell me to go stand on the side of 495 in a loincloth, golf shoes, and a light coat of oil, I will go do it. (laughs) I won't ask questions. Now, he says, it's a small group. But the reality is, when you talk about friendships, those are the people who you really have a connection. In the military, we used to say that on the radio in a firefight is not the time to establish a relationship. So you've got to understand that the sinews of a relationship actually come from other things. When we're geographically dispersed, that takes work. I usually believe that there has to be some face-to-face interaction, and you've got to be intentional about what you're doing. You can then follow that with email and phone calls, but the reality is a relationship built at long distance without more. I'm a great believer that video teleconferencing is far more effective than a phone call, which is far more effective than an email. And so there's this hierarchy and being able to see responses. If you and I had a screen between us now, we'd have a completely different conversation than the fact that you can see me and I can see you. There is something about a visual or being face-to-face. Exactly. Um, It's interesting, too, because you do say you need to have people in your life that you can call early in the morning or late at night. And that's true for people who are running things or running companies. You have to have those people. You, you need it more than ever because, as we know, the, lone, the military talks about the loneliness of command. But the reality is leaders in companies can't make all your subordinates your friends. You can be friendly with them, but it's unfair to make them your friend because in your friend, you come and you pour your heart out. You tell your problems. If you do that to a subordinate, one moment, 
They take that information in. They try to figure out how they should respond. Then the next day, you're very directive or you're critical. And you put them in this incredibly confusing position, which is not fair to them. Right. And so it takes us the discipline not to pollute that relationship unfairly, which means we need somebody. So I understand that. I'm thinking about something that Liz said last night from McKinsey and this whole idea. I talked about having eight hours of sleep, and she just talked about the importance that you really need to be rested to function well. But her point was when somebody comes in and they're crying or angry, (laughs) did you get sleep? So where is that line between being a manager that cares about its people because we all have things going on in our life and understanding that, but also understanding that we've got to run a company, right? And we have responsible for the top and bottom line. So where's that balance? Where did you have the balance between your guys that have to protect one another, protect this country versus making sure they're okay? I think one of the things you have to understand is going and rubbing somebody on the back and asking them how they feel may not actually be the most effective way of showing you really care. Caring about people, Erwin Rommel, the German general in World War II, said that the best form of troop welfare is first-class training. First, position them for success. Take care of them in ways that matter. In the military, that's food, that's protection, that's training, that's leadership. That's what you owe them first. Now, if you then have time to go rub them on the belly and tell them that you love them, that's great. But, but that's not the key thing. The key thing is doing your role to take care of them. Sometimes that means kicking them in the butt. Sometimes that means grabbing somebody and saying, you know, they feel sorry for themselves and you've got to get in their face and say, I don't care. And in combat, you'll find that people will be frightened. They will be exhausted. They will be all of these things. And the vast majority is, are strong everybody's weak on occasion. Everybody loses their composure or their courage or their will or their patience. And in those moments, somebody's got to grab them. I mean, even as a senior leader, I would lose my patience. And I had people around me who were confident enough to get in my face and say, stop it. Stop it right now. And that's, those are the best kinds of comrades and friends. And we need that. But it's, it's not always beanbag chairs and Lattes. <laughs> I want to talk about a time you were kicked in your butt a little bit. And More I know than once. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I know you've talked about this before, and this was after a Rolling Stone article in 2010. And it talked about you and your military strategy in Afghanistan. The title was The Runaway General. <laughs> and it talked about you and your staff having mocked some of the civilian government yeah. officials. You are a well-respected leader powerful, high visibility, and now you are part of the 24-hour news cycle. What was that like? Disorienting. And what had happened for background, this was a freelance writer who wrote a piece for the Rolling Stone. He came in a couple of times, wasn't embedded with us for a long time. We thought it was going to be a puff piece. We thought it was going to be about the command group at war. We'd been together for many of us many years. And then when the story came out, it came out at two in the morning, we saw it, and it's titled The Runaway General. And as soon as you see that, you know, you don't have to read further. You know you got a problem. <laughs> and there had been tension between Defense Department and the White House. Right. Not personal. I got along very well with President Obama, but there was this tension over the strategy. So this thing explodes, and I'm in Afghanistan. And as soon as it came out, I knew, big problem. Made some phone calls, and then I was asked to fly back to the United States that night to speak to the Secretary of Defense, the President, 
and I absolutely know what's going. But still, as I get on the plane for the 17-hour flight, my 86-year-old father down in Florida, I know he's seeing the news cycle every day. People who don't know what's going on are opining it in a, yeah. you know, on the media about it. My son in college is seeing it. And, of course, my wife at that point of 34 years is, uh, is seeing it. As we're flying back, 17-hour flight, I get this email from three privates. Three privates don't normally write the four-star general. And yeah, how did they get your email? Yeah, I don't, right. I don't know. <laughs> and it was funny because I'd met them. I'd gone on an operation with them outside of Kandahar, a combat operation. And so we had this special relationship. Yeah. And they sent me this thing and they said, we heard about this article. And if you let that reporter around and, and those things were said, we don't think that was very smart. Mm. Here I am reading this email going, whoa. And then they go, however, General, we know you and we love you. So whatever happens... Remember that. And you get that from three privates. And you land in D.C. and you go to see the president of the United States. He asks what's going on, what happened. And I didn't know. I mean, I didn't have the background at that point. Yeah. I just knew there was this conflagration. Had but, you read the article by this time? Yes. Okay. And I didn't think the article was accurate. I didn't think it depicted it fairly. But that didn't matter. Yeah. The president on his desk has this problem that came from my team. And it's my responsibility. It's not his. So I had prepared my resignation, and I offered it to President Obama. And I said, if you want me to go back and keep commanding, I'll do that. You know, if you want to yeah. give me a dressing down and do that, I'll do that. If you want my resignation, whatever's best for the mission. And he took it. And he was an incredible gentleman. He says, I'm going to accept it. Boom, boom, boom. President Obama. Yes. And so we had a short conversation. But here's the point. I walked out of that room I'd been four years at West Point. I'd born, been born in an Army hospital. Everything in my life had been military. Yeah. Then I'd spent 34 years as an officer, and in an instant, it's done. It's gone. And I walk out into this other office, and then I get in a vehicle and drive back to Fort McNair, uh, where my wife was living when I was in uh, Afghanistan. And literally, everything I was about and who I was is past. And not only passed, my wife had grown up in an army family. And so she had been connected and loyal to me for all these years. And I walked into the uh, house and she didn't know what was going to happen. I'd flown in that night and, you know, so we hadn't had a chance to talk about it. And she's standing in the entranceway of the house. And I said, Annie, it's over. Career's over. And she looked at me and she said, good. I like Annie. And then she said, we've always been happy and we'll always be happy. And you know, it was the most amazing thing. It was the best piece of leadership I've ever seen in my life. Because if she had pulled me aside and said, you got screwed, boom, boom, boom. You know, part of me inside yeah, yeah. wanted to, to, you know, rage and whatnot. And she goes, "Ah, uh -uh. we'll always be happy. We made a decision that day. We didn't sit down and say it. We just made it unconsciously and then lived it. What we decided is to live life facing forward because I had screwed that up. I accepted responsibility. That was my mistake for that article to come out. And I thought that I was disgraced and everybody in the world, every time I went anywhere, people would see across the room and they'd kind of point and whisper to themselves and you think, ah, they're talking about Wikipedia me. Wikipedia or any, any article. Yeah. It just, <laughs> that's it. It's yeah. there. And 
So you want to scream out and say I was wronged or, or whatever you want to do. And we decided differently. What we decided was we wouldn't try to relitigate that. We would just move forward. And I describe it as helped by Annie because she lives life like she drives with no use for the rearview mirror. <laughs> and so what we... Is that a knock on women driving? <laughs> All right. Just a second. Hope she's not listening. But anyway, um, so what we did was we decided that I would conduct myself and she as well in a way that everyone who'd never met us before but had read the article would say, wow, that person doesn't seem like that. Doesn't make sense. Or the people who had believed in us before would keep believing, would believe that, hey, I did the right thing to be friends or connected with him for so long. And, you know, it turned out to be the, the best decision of my life because You can go back and fight those kind of battles, but nobody cares but you. And second, it's about the future. You can't change anything in the past. Everybody in this room will probably fail. You'll fail at a marriage or you'll fail with a kid. You're failing business. You're going to fail at something. And then you're going to have to figure out how you deal with it. And for me, the greatest thing in the world has been focusing forward because it's now been nine years this month. And every year has been better. I mean, there were times when I still, you know, I read something or somebody refers to it and I just go, that's not right. But I just, it gets easier every year. And I just think mentally, psychologically, you know, all the things has made me stronger for the experience. Um, thank you for telling that. Oh, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And. So I'm wondering, I'm thinking about everybody listening. I mean, everybody's going to go through a crisis yeah. at some point. And, you, you know, I watch in terms of news coverage, VW, yeah. how long they fought it <laughs> or hit it or whatever. You know, just different companies, they deal, some of them get out, you know, the college admission scandals, companies got out right ahead of it if they had an employee who was involved. You know, what's your advice to some folks, to our breakaway members, yeah. that they're going to have some kind of crisis? How do, you, how do you deal it? Because you could have done and said, you know what, we're going to do, do some research and find out exactly what happened, blah, blah, and, and dragged it on. You could have done that. You didn't. And it wouldn't have been right for the mission there. Yeah. It would have put this pall over the mission for a long time. And even if the president had then fired me and pulled me out, it would have still put this question mark. We didn't need that. Right. Um, there are two things I'd say. Is first is when you have something where you make a mistake, just get out and own it. it it's, it's easier for you, too. The second thing is if the organization makes a mistake, the same thing. The hard part is going to be where there will be a perception of a mistake. And your first advice you get is cut off the diseased limb to move on. But the diseased limb may be some of your people, and they may not be guilty. They may not actually be wrong. And so there's a tendency sometimes to say, well, you know, I've got to get in front of this, so I've got to fire these people to... To, to create a fire break. And then you run into a real, this is where it gets hard, difficult thing. One, because you have loyalty to them. Right. Maybe they don't deserve it, even though the press is calling for their heads. And second, everyone else in the organization is watching because they will extrapolate how you treat them to how you're going to treat them when it happens. And so the idea of balancing loyalty and balancing taking care of people with doing something that protects the organization, this is where it's hard. 
And this is where it takes leadership to explain it. It takes leadership to get to the bottom of things uh, as you go forward. What do you make of leadership today? Where it's also, you know, we have a commander-in-chief who leads often by tweets. We have CEOs of companies like Elon Musk, maybe on Twitter. I don't know today where he is right now. But, you know, this is how we do it. It tends to be provocative. It tends to kind of shake things up. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying everybody does that, but we are in a new world order, it feels like, when it comes to leadership and what's, what's allowed. I see some extraordinary leadership in companies and organizations. I mean, just calm, focused, caring leadership. Is there anybody in particular that you are I, admire? I'm a great friend of Keith Cratch of DocuSign. He's now just joined in the United States government. Mm-hmm. Brad Smith of Intuit. People I've worked with closely right. that I've gotten to know. Uh, Andy Sieg of Merrill Lynch. These are people I've gotten up close and watched them lead, and I'm deeply impressed by it. But a lot of people are confusing celebrity for leadership and the idea that you can say a lot or go out and create this persona, and that's leadership. And to a degree, you may influence people. You may actually, if you you do that, you may get people to think certain things. But I don't think that's where you get the kind of loyalty to where you're going that's going to bring people along for the long term. I don't think it's building the team for the long term. You look at really good football coaches. If you look at the life cycle of them, they they typically come in and it's hard in the first years. And they're not popular because they're putting in some things that may be painful. They may be inconvenient for people. They may be demanding. Then when they build up over time a track record and people know this is really for the best of the people in the organization. He knows what he's talking about or she knows what she's talking about. completely different. And so I think that's the kind of leadership that is durable. That's the kind of leadership that I want to see in every organization in my nation. You've got a book out. You've, got, you've written several books, but this one's called Leaders, Myth, and Reality. You've, you've come on Bloomberg Air and talked to us about it. Um, what are some of the myths when it comes to good leaders? Yeah, we really brought it down. This to, is a fun book, too, because you talk yeah. about all kinds of leaders. Well, we profile 13 leaders yeah. to include Coco Chanel. And the truth my is, favorite. I didn't know it was a it's person. Fun when we started the book. I just thought Are you was, kidding? I did. No clue. And so we did this very broad range, but we came up with these three big myths. And the first is the formulaic myth. And that's the idea that as a leader, there's a series of behaviors or things you can do. And if you do those, you're going to be effective. And the reality is when you look at the data, people who do all those fail quite often. And people who do very few of them succeed. Right. And so there's not this formula you can follow. There's not X habits of effective leaders that, that's going to guarantee your success. The second was the attribution myth. And that's the idea that the leader is responsible for the organization succeeding and failing. And if you get the right CEO or the right president, you're good. Uh, history doesn't bear that out either. In fact, what we find is context to the moment and the followers are just as important as the leader. And yet, we, because we have a history of biography, we tend to put the spotlight on the key person. And when you follow that person around, they tend to be the center of the stage and everybody else is slightly in the shadows. In reality, those other factors are just as big in the outcome. So the leader's not the beginning and end of the story. And the last is the results myth, and that is that we as followers or we as shareholders or anything are demanding and that we demand results from our leaders. The reality is we select, promote, and follow leaders routinely who are absolutely ineffective, get terrible results, and yet we stick with them. It's 
Extraordinary. Why? Adolf Hitler was still popular in the spring of 1945 after 12 years of taking Germany into absolute defeat. You'd think that the, the German population would have hated him by now, by then. Absolutely the opposite. We, leadership fills not an objective requirement. We're not nearly as objective as we think. We're much more subjective and emotional in our connection to leaders. Leaders fill some needs. They fill the idea that the future will be better. And so really that the punchline of the book is leadership is far more complex than we think it is. It's not all about this great woman or great man. It's about this ecosystem. And we as followers have far greater responsibility or agency than we sometimes admit. We tend to say, well, we'll, we'll wait till a great leader comes along. And when they do, we'll make them show us their tricks and then we'll follow them. <laughs> And the reality is that's not the way it has to work. We own it. We as participants, because followers probably not the right word. Right. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about is diversity. This yeah. was something at Breakaway we talked about a lot last year, and certainly Me Too yeah. has put it front and center. Um, the military has not been great. Corporate yeah. America hasn't been great yeah. in terms of diversity, despite years and years of studies that talk about how things will do better. How many times have we had that conversation here? Yeah. What's, what's the problem? What, what, what's the responsibility? How do we get leaders to do it right and make more diverse workforces yeah. all the way up the chain? Yeah, it is systemic. And, and the reason I say it's systemic is I think of the United States Army. When I grew up as a child, I remember going to Fort Benning, Georgia, and there was a, on one street, there was a movie theater, pretty nice. And then about a block and a half down, there was another movie theater. And I said, well, this is great. You know, you got choice. Well, they were created back in the 1920s when one was for white soldiers and one was for African-American soldiers. And my grandfather was a company commander there. And I remember my father telling me this story. If you go to the Pentagon today, you'll notice there are plenty of bathrooms, more bathrooms than most buildings. And with a big population, that's very handy. It's because they built twice as many as you needed because you couldn't have African-Americans and whites. And it was built in 1941 wasn't built in 1841. And so we create systems. When the, when the U.S. Army was ordered to integrate in 1948, it had had African-American soldiers in at different ranks before. But the reality was you needed to create forcing functions to cause that to happen. You needed, it took about six or eight years yeah. before the military actually went through with integrating all units and whatnot. And then my experience with females in the military they started to come in, at officers, but then female officers would be given jobs like the protocol officer. They'd be given things, and they were good at it, and they were professional. But then when it came time to pick people to be brigade commanders and then general officers, as you looked at records, their records were not as strong in terms of the jobs they'd have as the male officers. Right. And so the board gets together, and the board is told to pick the best qualified people. And the board can look at this and they can justify themselves. Well, the reality is the male officers have had better experience and therefore the male officers are more qualified. Therefore, we will select them. And it wasn't a bunch of male and getting together, say, keep out women. It was there was probably some unconscious bias there, but nobody ever said it openly. But it was the best qualified thing. The problem is you have to fix the system from the bottom to the top, right. which can take two generations. My belief now is you got to start. One of my close friends is Ann Dunwoody. She was the first female four-star. 
her grandfather and father were both West Pointers. She couldn't go to West Point because she was female. She was one year older than me, so it was before films were not. We were battalion commanders together. Ann and I have been friends for 30 years. Uh, she didn't have the same opportunity. Now, she fought through it because she just performed her way through it. But the reality is, I think you've got to take the system. And the, the term I know is affirmative action. And you've got to make that work. And you've got to, you've got to put senior females and, and other minorities or any things that right. you want represented. You've got to put them in senior enough roles where they can mentor the junior people. And when I talk about diversity, I do mean everything. Absolutely. You've, everything. you've got to create right. that opportunity. And it's Equal. very easy to say when we're here, but if you're in a company and you've got key roles in your company and you're having a tough time finding a CFO or a COO or key roles and you can't find people who are diverse or you know people right. who are like you and therefore you say, I got it, I'm all about diversity, but I need Frank to do this job because I know Frank. That's tough. I mean, it really is look at tech company boards and whatnot. So, right. But I think what but if we, we don't start sometime. Well, that's it. I think affirmative action is where you've got to go, even though people don't like the term anymore. Can anybody be a leader? Um, anyone. And people like, come up all the time and ask you that, don't they? They do. <laughs> um, yes. Leadership is mostly about self-discipline. If I asked everybody here to write a list of what a leader does and doesn't do, our lists wouldn't be vastly different. Now, what we do or don't do is vastly different based upon how much self-discipline we have to do it. Think of how many times at work you know what you ought to do. And either because it's inconvenient or tiring or frightening or something, you don't. I mean, how many times a day do I find something I go, wow, I should have done that and I didn't. And so I think leadership is more about self-discipline than anything else. That was retired General Stanley McChrystal. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business Week Extra. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.